Hey baby, today's episode of the Nerd Byword is all about love. Dave and Chris is talking about their favorite couples in comics. Stick around. Love is in the air, everywhere I look around. No wait, that's just a haze of disinfectant spray that surrounds me as I continue to dodge the coronavirus. Welcome, ladies and gentle nerds, to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. With Valentine's Day less than a week away, it's the perfect time for Chris and I to talk about love. Who are the best comic book couples? We'll discuss that question today. But first, let's get some nerd news. Chris, what's new? So the X office at Marvel Comics is really stepping their game up in terms of reader interaction. It was recently established in the pages of of X-Men that for the first time in its history, the roster of the team X-Men would be determined by democratic elections held on Krakoa, the new sovereign nation established by the mutant population of the 616 Marvel Universe. An interesting wrinkle was revealed when Marvel.com held X-Men elections, allowing fans around the world the chance to choose the final member of the X-Men team. The 10 choices were Banshee, Polaris, Forge, Boom Boom, Tempo, Cannonball, Sunspot, the right choice, Strong Guy, (laughs) Marrow, and Armor. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more passionate fandom than that of X-Twitter, and battle lines and campaign slogans, posters, and messages were running rampant immediately. Yours truly was Team Sunspot, Roberto da Costa, especially written by Jonathan Hickman in his Avengers run, now Hickman writing X-Men. It's, it's a match made in heaven, but I digress. While a large group of fans rallied behind the hashtag Time for Tempo hashtag, the polls were open from January 27th to February the 2nd, and the result is going to be on hold until uh, its reveal in June's first annual Hellfire Gala. Um, in addition to this entire process, Marvel Insider, a points-based reward system for Marvel fans, is holding a sweepstakes for fans to be drawn into the pages of the Hellfire Gala as well, only adding to the suspense and anticipation that was already present well before these developments. Now, Dave, you are a recent recruit of mine to my radical mutant agenda. What do you think of all this? You know, I think this is actually one heck of an idea. I'm shocked that comic book companies don't use the power of the net to let fans occasionally contribute a little more often. You know, the online community uh, surrounding comic books is particularly passionate. And so harnessing that passion to drum up reader interest would be the smart move in my book. You know, the most legendary fan participation over on the DC side of things is, of course, the the, the phone decision to kill Jason Todd in the story of Death in the Family. And then, of course, there were fan votes when DC versus Marvel Comics released in order to decide, you know, the winner of some of the fights. But this X-Men vote thing strikes me as a much more positive experience. Voting for the inclusion of a character on a team it kind of provides just a great opportunity to shine a spotlight on some lesser known B list or even D list characters. 
I wish they would go really hardcore on a vote like this once and let fans literally vote for which character from a list gets, let's say, a six-issue miniseries. I could see several characters that are severely lacking exposure getting a chance to shine. You know what? I mean, comic book companies always worry about greenlighting a book, wondering if it will sell, uh, whether it's worth the risk. But if you put it out there for a vote, you know, you, you'll kind of know for sure you have a built-in audience. So I think this is a fantastic idea, and I really hope that DC is taking notes and gets you know some audience, some reader interaction going on their side as well. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic idea. Like a basically like a free focus group, um, you, you know, kind of speculative uh, market there. Um, the fascinating thing about this too is the fact that this is Jonathan Hickman's baby. All of the X titles right now, he's kind of like the X overlord. I mean, like where they have, um, you know, really talented writers on the different books, but he's basically kind of the puppeteer of all of this. And and if you're familiar with any of his writing you know how meticulous and detail oriented it is and the fact that this leah williams who who's currently writing x factor among other titles for marvel said this is 100 percent like you decide um and and so that's why of course it's all the way out until june so they can like shift it up and and every x writer had to offer up one character that that they would be willing to part with and and then so like they're waiting you know for these results to come in so they can develop their storyline going forward minus one character potentially so it's really really cool to see someone who is so famous for being so plan oriented and and detail oriented throwing in this random element, uh, like a fan vote. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited to see how this all shakes out, even though in fairness, I'm kind of watching this whole, you know, X-Men run uh, more from a distance because despite my repeated efforts to get into it, I've, I've not kind of found my way into the storyline yet. I'm, you know, keep picking at various series, you know, trying to find an in that'll get me hooked. But so far, not quite. But this idea, I really, really like. All right, Dave, you're talking about my doppelganger. Uh, there's been a switch up with Thor. What's going on? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, the fact that I'm talking Marvel already should tell you that there's something pretty uh, major going on that caught my eye. You know, Jason Aaron, as we both know, has been a driving force behind Thor at Marvel for quite a while. You know, I've only recently started diving into his run on the character, and it already stands alongside some of my favorite interpretations of Thor. Aaron's uh, War of the Realms crossover was also one of my favorite event comics in recent years. I absolutely loved it. So let's not even talk about his run on Star Wars at Marvel, which was a must-read pull for me. So I'm, I'm a fan of Jason Aaron's. I really like his work. So needless to say, my eyebrows shot up so fast, they practically leapt from my forehead when I came across this story. Apparently, during his current run on Avengers, which I'll admit I have not kind of dived into yet, uh, Aaron has made a massive change to Thor's origin story. He went full retcon on us. So the current storyline, Enter the Phoenix, is basically about a bunch of heroes and villains battling in a competition for the right to obtain the Phoenix Force. And as all nerds know, this sucker famously possessed Jean Grey of the X-Men in a storyline that I actually have read. In a past Thor story, apparently, from 2017, Aaron revealed, spoilers obviously, 
that Thor's dad Odin used to have a thing with the phoenix. Yeah, like that. Odd, but you know, why not? This story thread, Chicken kinda came home to roost in Avengers number 42 when, and massive spoilers now, the phoenix addressed Thor as my son. Now I'm sitting here pretty slack-jawed because this one is just so odd. Why try to tie Thor's origin to the Phoenix Force? If this is a fake-out, what is gained for the story? And if it's not a fake-out, I ask again, what's gained? How will this change lead to more great Thor stories without fundamentally changing the character? You know, I really want to say an Aaron I trust, but this one just throws me for a loop. Chris, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, so I echo all of your sentiments about but Jason Aaron as a creator, but I have to admit that it's been hard, you know, sledding for me. I've I've gotten up to issue fourteen, so I'm quite a good deal behind in Avengers, but I'm I'm finding it, you know, kind of lacking, you know, when compared to his Thor run. So I'm like, there's something missing there. It's not quite clicking. So um I, I'm I'm reading it a little bit at a time, but it hasn't right hasn't really like hooked me yet. Um and, and it's just like a really I feel like um like the Bendis magic. Like the magic is kind of worn off and like it, it it's you know inevitable that um, when you're a creator, you're going to even the best of the best have like runs and arcs that are, you know, less than their, your favorites, you know? So I, I think first of, you know, Brian Michael Bendis and, and ultimate Spider-Man, um, I can't say enough about, I've, I've waxed poetic about it on this podcast. Um, but even on that same title that I love so much, the, the decision to bring Peter Parker back from the dead was one of the the strangest and and one of you know I thought it was a regression in character growth, um, and then you continue on with his um, later works in in Miles and his his later works at Marvel. The Spider Man Two was very lackluster and very disappointing. So I'm I'm hoping that um, that you know reading you know more current Avengers issues. Uh, it'll kind of win me over, but um, you know, everybody has that one title, even Stan, the man himself has, has books, the, the early uncanny X-Men books, even with Jack Kirby, there's just something lacking. Um, And it was really the relaunch of, of X-Men with giant size X-Men in 75 that made the team more international, more diverse, more interesting that, that really drew me in as a reader. I don't really have a lot of interest to go read five, you know, bland white characters that don't have a lot of, you know, diversity, um, you know. So um, I, it, it's a really weird decision. Like these, this obsessiveness and this always going back to a million BC or whatever the the date is, just like going back and like the Zeusification of, of Odin, like Odin is a rolling stone, um, you know, and, and that matches up with a lot of Norse mythology, like the, the, the parallels between Zeus and, um, you know, Odin of, of being a player, but it's just a really weird retcon as of yet. I, I'm withholding judgment until I actually read it. 
It seems to me like Odin in this particular case uh, has more in common with Ben Franklin than with Zeus. <laughs> I mean, just just uh, the general look of him, and yet he's able to attract the interest of the ladies pretty consistently. Um, yeah, you know, again, it's it's easy to say, you know, to jump on social media right now and say this is a horrible decision or something. You know, Aaron might have a fantastic plan with this. Um I'm not really the biggest fan of the Phoenix Force when it's divorced from the X-Men to begin with, though. Um, I, I, I always find the Phoenix Force sort of um, disconnected, hard, hard to connect to anything other than, you know, the most famous storyline associated with it which is, of course, Dark Phoenix. So I, I kind of not a biggest fan of the Phoenix Force to begin with. Uh, and I also wonder what... What kind of connection will this cause now between Thor and the X-Men? Is that a, a threat that they want to pick up? M- most interestingly to me, though, what happens if Thor wins this thing and the Phoenix Force possesses him? Does he then basically go running around telling everybody, my mother is inside of me? Like, that 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 whole situation <laughs> just seems like, odd squared no let's say odd cubed and even if he's not the one that wins and somebody else wins does he then start calling that character that got possessed by the phoenix force mom like can you imagine him addressing wolverine as a mother that this it's just the 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 possibilities sort of boggle the mind at this point i guess yeah and and another I'll, i'll say this from you know the mutant fandom one of the big retcons that that really um upset a lot of x-men fans was the fact that um apocalypse has spent the better part of the last 30 plus years being the first mutant in all that history and that was trumped by this storyline in avengers not even in x title so that has that has uh upset quite a few fans as well yeah, we'll have to watch this one closely and, and cross our fingers and hope that uh, Aaron has a plan that is going to knock our socks off. All right, there you have it, folks. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to put on our rose-colored glasses, grab a handful of Hershey's Kisses, and call the Nerdy Love Doctor. The best comic book couples are next. Stick around. <laughs> And we're back with the Byword Big Talk for this week, where we are all about love for this year's Valentine's Day. And so we decided we are going to dive into who are the very best comic book couples that we have encountered in our extensive reading. Now, this is not a exhaustive list. Uh, There are obviously many other couples that we appreciate, but we each decided to limit ourselves to our three favorites at this time. And I'll go ahead and I'll throw it to Chris to get us started. Chris, let's talk your first favorite comic book couple. Well, for me, it it begins and and ends with um, Mary Jane Watson, Parker, and and Peter Parker. Um, It was the first couple that I was introduced to um, with, with the animated series in the 90s. It was the first one that I immediately ran to when I started reading comics. For me, they're, we use this phrase a lot, but they're my gold standard for a relationship. Um, and quite honestly, they're the principal reason that that birthed this idea for this episode for me. Um, when I think of Valentine's Day and comics and romance, I think of Mary Jane and Pete. 
Um, I think what what fascinates me the most about their relationship is it's it's really always interesting to me when you have a superpowered individual and a non-superpowered significant other in the couple and that entire dynamic. How does that work? Um, Superman, Lois Lane is always interesting to me, even as a casual DC consumer. Um, MJ and Pete is very much the same story. Uh, they have the perfect balance in their relationship and, and both characters have adequate individuality and agency. She is not this damsel in distress all the time where she needs her man to be rescued. One of the problems that I had with, with Wonder Woman 84 with, was Diana, the superpowered individual, still pining after, pun intended, pine, uh, her man. <laughs> it, 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 it was quite uncomfortable. And in a society that we live in, in, in 2021, where women are rightfully being encouraged and empowered, um, it, it felt uncomfortable her reliance on on him and and even with her powers um i think of the song lyrics i love her because she got her own like she has her own career she's an actor she's a model like she does not she is not dependent upon peter she is not dependent upon spider-man she's not dependent upon her uh, her husband she doesn't need him but she chooses him. And I think that's powerful. Um, she's a feminist icon. Like she is interesting enough that she had her own title by Leah Williams, uh, the amazing Mary Jane. Um, I think that that book was canceled, but it was very, very interesting to me. I was like, Hmm, how are they going to do this? This is a title led by, uh, you know, an individual that does not have superpowers. What's this going to be about? And I enjoyed it. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, the main they're the main reason that I adored and always go back to the the JMS and the JRJAR era of Amazing Spider-Man, not because um it's this pie in the sky romance. I'm I'm a very big hopeless romantic. Like I'm I'm super mushy like that. I'm I'm very atypical kind of guy. But um I also am a realist and I'm I'm a pragmatist. But uh, what I love about the relationship, it's not perfect. It's not idealized. And and that era of um, JMS run and JRJR on art, like I think of the Doomed Affairs arc. Um, and you have those panels where they're going, He Peter's going to L.A., to to try and reconcile differences and she's going back to new york and they just barely missed each other and those panels with no words and and then they finally meet at the airport and it shows the realistic and pragmatic struggles of a marriage and a long-term committed relationship what happens when the honeymoon is over and it's a Thursday afternoon at 2.30. And it's just like the day-to-day -day normal stuff of a real relationship. And I, I, I can feel that in a real sense and I can relate to that. And I think that this idea and their relationship was perfectly captured. And I've ranted about how much I love this comic before. But 2007's Sensational Spider-Man Annual number 1. Matt Fraction on words. Sal Salvador La Roca on art. Um it's also one of my favorite parts of Tom Taylor's friendly, amazing Spider-Man. And I'm glad that they're seeing a return to this relationship, even after one more day and, and that awfulness, at least we're seeing a return to the relationship with or without marriage in the current ASM issues. And I hope that they expound on it even more. 
but I love me some Pete and MJ content. You know what? I, I think I can totally echo this one. This pairing is just so epic. Uh, it's endgame stuff. You always feel like MJ and Pete are endgame, even when they keep you know yanking them apart, separating them. These are the characters that basically are tailor-made for each other. And, you know, we've talked at length about how much we both dislike One More Day and what it did to this couple. MJ and Pete were status quo when I got into Spidey comics uh, in, in the 90s. Now, I will freely admit that the depiction of the relationship in the 90s was not um, very good in the sense that it was all honeymoon all the time. It was very common for, you know, Pete comes home from being Spider-Man and she's, you know, MJ's waiting for him in a little nighty or something, you know, <laughs> like that, that wasn't exactly the depiction that sold me on the couple. But the idea of them being together was basically my foundation of how I understood Spider-Man. It's, it's Peter and MJ. So seeing him with anybody else or even single just always seems, you know, wrong somehow. But you you hit the nail on the head, particularly JMS for me, uh, did such a good job sort of putting his stamp on this relationship and saying, you know what, this this is not um, this is not just some kind of fantasy. This is a, a real couple that goes through real issues and, and some very fantastical issues, certainly. But, you know, the way he wrote that relationship is probably my favorite thing about his run, even though ultimately it ended in disaster for those couples. And that sensational Spider-Man annual that you uh, referenced actually has a, a place of honor in my collection, bagged and boarded, and I get it out frequently and reread it because it is one of the best encapsulations of that relationship. And it was so galling to read that because it came out right before One More Day. To read that and then read One More Day, and I was like, you got it just a second ago. <laughs> what happened over here? Like, over here you got it, and then over here you lost it. It, it was absolutely infuriating. Well, so yeah, they they are my second favorite pairing at Marvel by far. Uh, so here's here's hoping that Spencer's run continues. Holding these two together again, they are definitely more fun together than they are apart. And I feel like I interrupted you, so go for it, Chris. No, not at all. It's funny that you say that because when I was doing research for the pod, just to make sure that I had the issue numbers and volumes correct for that particular issue, Marvel.com's website is like, this is one of the last... Mary Jane and Peter stories before one more day. That's what you're leading with. That's what you're advertising. God. Um, but yeah, uh, for sure. And, um, you know, it's, it's just something I always go back to and, and, um, you know, credit where credit is due. It's funny that you reference, um, the nineties era of, of like the lingerie and, and all that stuff. And the Todd father, I love Todd McFarlane, but like that <laughs> stuff is so, so heavy handed. Um, but you know, I will, I will say that for me, that's an era where the B title spectacular superseded amazing, the A title. Um, and, and the way that, J.M. DeMatteis was writing that very similar of like someone who has been in a long-term relationship and understands the intricacies of that. Um, what the work that he was doing on spectacular with Sal Buscema on art, it's, it's just really fantastic. So if you're looking for good early nineties, not smut um, for lack of a better term, definitely look <laughs> at some early nineties, spectacular Spider-Man um, Dave. Okay. So I have to say that, 
with the exception of your third and final couple, I know next to nothing about your other two. So I'm fascinating to learn. Take me to school with your first school, uh, with your first couple. Well, let's, let's go DC comics, which is where I live. Obviously I love Batwoman, the comic book specifically, but the character as well, you know, the TV show has been fine, I guess, although I've not checked out season two quite yet. And I'm excited to see how they revamped the show, but that's a, a whole nother topic. To me, though, the potent writing of Greg Rucka combined with the insanely cool layouts and art by J.H. Williams III created a truly, truly special book. And I don't think anybody taking on the character of Kate Kane has quite matched that potent combination yet. And even after Rucka left the series, you know, Williams pressed on, further developing Kate and her world alongside co-writer W. Hayden Blackman. And one of the most wondrous things to watch was this blossoming relationship between Kate Kane and police detective Maggie Sawyer, a character that had her origin mostly in in the Superman comics, but, you know, got to transfer to Gotham and fit right in to the supporting cast of Batwoman. The two characters gravitated towards each other in such a realistic way attracted despite their differences or, you know, maybe because of them. You know, Maggie had even a kid from a previous relationship, which added additional realism and layers to their relationship, you know, and and they were, they had such different backgrounds. Kate, you know, this, this wealthy socialite party girl and Maggie, the, the much more sort of, sort of blue collar, hardworking, you know, um, it's just, it was a fascinating combination. And so then when Kate proposed to Maggie, many fans were set for a Batwoman wedding and it felt right. It was 2013. Uh, you know, the, the legalization of gay marriage was just around the corner. Um, and Batwoman, whose character had already been expelled from the military for violating Don't Ask, Don't Tell, was the perfect character at DC to plant the flag for gay marriage. And then DC crapped the bed. DC editorial would not allow Williams and Blackman to marry these two characters. So the co-writers walked off the book mid-storyline. Now here's what Dan DiDio said at the time about the decision to The Hollywood Reporter. And I quote, They put on a cape and cowl for a reason. They're committed to defending others at the sacrifice of all their own personal instincts. That's something we reinforce. If you look at every one of the characters in the Batman family, their personal lives kind of suck. Tim Drake, Barbara Gordon, and Kathy Kane. It's wonderful that they try to establish personal lives, but it's also just as important that they put it aside as they know what they are accomplishing as the hero takes precedence over everything else. That is our mandate. That is our edict. That is our stand with our characters. And you know the silly anti-marriage edict that DC had going on for a while? It was just so galling and ridiculous. Aquaman and Mara's marriage was undone. Wally West, who was a married Flash with kids, was dumped for a single Barry Allen. Superman was suddenly single and you know no longer with Lois Lane and was dating Wonder Woman suddenly. And so on and so forth. It was one of the most ridiculous movements in DC Comics, and it seemed to be sort of the sweeping, you know, none of our characters should really be in a committed long-term relationship. And and the fact that this then kind of just rolled onto 
the Batwoman title at, at a really a moment in history where DC could have planted their flag and said, you know, this is a great, worthy relationship. It deserves to to be, you know, consummated in in, in marriage. Uh, it was just galling. You know, the fact that this absolutely fascinating, complex, difficult, but totally worth it relationship between Kate Kane and Maggie Sawyer fell victim to this editorial mandate is such a crying shame. And so naturally, subsequent writers separated them. And, you know, Batwoman was swinging single. And and it just felt wrong after all the groundwork that was laid so perfectly by, by Rucka, by J.H. Williams III, and by W. Hayden Blackman. So although I have a healthy dose of frustration about this couple, in some ways similar to the frustration I feel about Peter and Mary Jane, the ride was so worth it. Those two characters and the way they were written, the way they interacted, it felt real, it felt honest, and a, and a marriage felt earned. It's just a shame it never happened. Yeah, this is wild to me. Dave, you're supposed to be like selling me on DC content, trying to get me to read more. Now I'm pissed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'm pissed about two characters that I've never even read about. No, um, I have I have this Batman run saved in my Comicsology Unlimited library. Um, once I get done binging Invincible, my God, can we talk about it? Okay, I'm gonna get tangented. <laughs> uh, wow. So, um, but but yeah, that's that's saved in my Comicsology library as well. So I'm, I'm very. Um, you've referenced Greg Rucka several several times, so I'm I'm definitely interested um, in, in reading his work. But it, it's just frustrating that they weren't able to stick the landing um, and, and do all of these things. And just the ridiculous notion, and you can pour this over into Marvel as well, is that like your heroes can't be married. Like I think some of the most powerful stories in comics are the ones that you can relate to and the escape. Yes. We, yes, we want escapism, but we want to have like some connective tissue, some connective threads that we can relate to. If we're always living this like, pie in the sky, unrelatable type of things. I mean, like we talk about quite often Superman and his relatability. Part of that relatability is the fact that he's in a relationship with Lois. And that's something I, you know, can relate to um, that they lead different lives. So uh, to have this, you know, overarching editorial mandate to ground things and, you know, like I said, I'm I'm looking at you, Joe Casada, as well. It's just frustrating how you are shooting yourself in the foot, story-wise, and you are limiting yourself to the growth and the emotional impact that you can have with your audience. I think we ultimately have to remember that there seems there's a notion, I think, among many writers in comics, or at the very least, among many editors in comics, that a committed long-term relationship is somehow limiting. Like you cannot, you know, well, you cannot introduce a new character for them to date. Well, well, do they have to date every new character? Is that the only way that that you can find a way to introduce new characters is through, you know, romantic interest? And, and anybody who says that there's not story potential in a committed long-term relationship, to me, must never have been in a committed long-term relationship. But right there, right there. Took the words out of my mouth. Because it, it's it's nothing but story potential. There is all sorts of stuff happening 
in a committed long-term relationship that can fuel storytelling uh, in, in the realm of fiction. It, it seems nonsense to me. And it, it, it was very painful to see this particularly happening to the Kate Kane Maggie Sawyer pairing. And if you're really planning on reading this, Chris, I'm going to tell you, Rucka's writing on it is fantastic in the early going, but the superstar of that series is J.H. Williams III. He does things with layouts that I have never seen before. Well, well, even even the color scheme, you know, I, I, it was in my ear when I was scrolling through and adding things to my library. Your recommendation, like, oh yeah, he was talking about this. But I got to be honest with you, like this, the stark contrast of the black and the red and the white, it immediately jumped out to me, and that's immediately what what led me to that title. Yeah, it's it's artistically speaking, one absolutely one of the most gorgeous books that I think DC has ever put out. So totally worth a read. All right, Chris, let's go ahead and get to your next couple before I start pulling my hair out over here about the Maggie Sawyer Batwoman situation. What you got? Well, ho- well, hopefully I can make you feel a little bit better. I'm going to go with um, a gay marriage that did stick the landing and has withstood um, eight years, nine years now of continuity, and they're still married. I'm going with uh, North Star Jean-Paul Bobier and Kyle Genado, his husband, um, and, and, you know, for me as a, as a straight man, like what I can appreciate about this relationship is that relationships are very different and I'm not talking just, you know, orientation wise or anything like that. I think the best written relationships in comics are the ones that anybody, no matter their orientation, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their, um, you know, their background can, can look at that relationship and say, I, I totally feel you. I can totally relate. Um, and not every, you know, successful long-term relationship is going to look exactly the same. Not everybody's going to be Pete and MJ. Not everybody's going to be Clark and Lois. <laughs> what I, what I love about Jean-Paul and Kyle is that these two, um, are polar opposites and yet how they work so well together. They see each other's difference and they complement one another in strengths and weaknesses, Okay, so just to give some background, because these may not be characters that are at the forefront um, and and the most recognizable. So North Star, Jean-Paul Bobier, he is um, French-Canadian, and his twin sister Aurora, they're both super fast, like that's their mutant ability. And Kyle Genado was um, a friend of his sister Aurora, and um, they met, fell in love, all that jazz. Um, but personality wise, um, Jean-Paul Northstar is pompous and arrogant. He is truly a narcissistic asshole. Like he is one of the most powerful, uh, powerful mutants on the face of the planet. And he'll never let you forget that fact. Um, in contrast, Kyle is quiet and reserved, but don't let that fool you. He's working in the shadows to achieve amazing results of his own in a different fashion. He works as Jean Paul's like PR staff and like his, he has a background in public relations and marketing. So he just has like a different type of power. It's not a superpower, but he has just different talents and abilities. And I'm always fascinated by strong supporting characters who don't have superpowers and yet are compelling enough to stand out on their own. Look no further than Mary Jane, as I just, you know, testified to. Um, Kyle's background, as I said, is in public relations, marketing. They give him this sensational, like, sage wisdom and succinct ability to size up a situation. 
um, in the most recent issue of X Factor, which is a fantastic title, and I highly recommend it. Um, Leah Williams is is one of the best in the game right now. He made a very brief appearance, um, but in some ways he stole the show by how accurate his input was on the situation. Um, you know, he is the only human living in this area of Krakoa. And Krakoa is mutants only. This is their sovereign nation. Um, very few exceptions for humans. And Kyle being the spouse of North Star is allowed on the island. I love their relationship because, as I said, it transcends orientations, ethnic backgrounds. Kyle is a black man. Jean-Paul is a white man. Um, but that but that transcends, you know, all of those things, nationalities, you know, being French Canadian. I look at this relationship and I completely relate to a lot of the aspects of of their relationship. The the kind of yin to the yang, the the give and the take. Um, even in like less successful arcs and runs. You know, Jean-Paul Northstar was in uh, Chuck Austin's run of X-Men, and I've talked about how awful that was. But even in that arc, he was, you know, like one of the few diamonds in the rough. Um, and, and their relationship is really, really great and time-tested and true. And um, it's just really great to to enjoy. And I also think of, it makes me think of another relationship that I almost added to this list, but I... Um, haven't finished even season two of Star Trek Discovery yet, but I think of the relationship with um, Lieutenant Stamets and Dr. Hugh Colber and like their relationship where they're just standing in front of the mirror, brushing their teeth to one, uh, next to each other. And, you know, just normal day to day stuff of of partners or spouses or significant others in a relationship that normal stuff like that, it transcends, you know, gay, straight, bisexual, like black, white, Asian, anything. Like if I can, you can look at that and like some things are, some truths are universal when it comes to being a romantic relationship with an individual. And this is one of those cases. You know, as a much more avid reader of DC than Marvel, this pairing and its significance completely flew under my radar, even at the time. I'm psyched you put it on the list though. It's, It's clearly the kind of relationship and wedding that Kate Kane and Maggie Sawyer should have had over at DC. So I basically know nothing about North Star, but I did a little bit of research and I'm quite interested to learn more. A character with this kind of love story would no doubt be an interesting read. So I, I find this whole, this whole thing fascinating. Um, minor characters from my understanding, but still able to kind of steal the show. That's exactly my kind of jam. So uh, you definitely have piqued my interest, Chris. Yeah. So like, for example, and again, this is the most recent issue of X Factor, which, which North Star is the kind of the leader of that group and X Factor. Basically what they do is they investigate mutant murder. So it's like, if you're a fan of like detective shows, like check out X Factor. It's like mutant detective shows. It's like law and order on Krakoa. It's a super cool book. But so, um, they go to investigate or they're doing this investigation and they talk to Jamie Madrex, multiple man. And he says, you know, when I ran X factor, we did things different, uh, differently. And North star just says, must be why I'm running things now. <laughs> so it's just this like narcissistic nature complemented by his husband, just being a polar opposite, but yet they still work as a couple. It's, it's just really cool. 
Now, Dave, you are going way off in the woods for your next one. Time for another detour into Vertigo territory. God, this DC imprint was the best. I miss you, Vertigo. Please come back. One of the best and most long-lived series in the Vertigo lineup was Fables, a story of fairy tale characters who have to escape and hide in the real world. Think something like ABC's uh, Once Upon a Time, but qualitatively about 1,000% better. It was written by uh, Bill Willingham. The series was a tour de force. It, it just was incredible. Mark Buckingham penciled 110 issues of this series. Although, you know, there's some issues featured other artists. He, he sort of set the tone visually for the series and, and, and what a job he did. The central couple, and let me tell you, this series had a lot going on, was Bigby Wolf and Snow White. Bigby was quite literally the big bad wolf who saved Snow White and her sister Rose Red. In exchange, Snow stabbed him with a knife touched by werewolf blood, which allowed him to take human form and escape into the real world as well. Their romance was slow burn. Bigby was clearly attracted to Snow. The feeling was mutual, but Snow hit it quite well. It took something like 50 issues before the two actually got together. They ended up married and had something like seven kids, which makes sense because when your husband's a wolf, you literally have a litter. Uh, their relationship is just filled with great moments and interesting themes. You know, Snow uh, has a history of making poor choices when it comes to men. She's afraid the big bad wolf himself would be just another such choice. On the other hand, you have Big B, who's the guy who wants to be better in part because of Snow. There's love, there's redemption, there's overcoming insecurities, there's forging a lasting bond. You know, I also really love that the two characters are not for lack of a better term, assimilated into the marriage collective. You know, even after they're married, they remain clearly distinct. They have different opinions. They have different approaches. They'll clash even as a married couple. Um, I liked reading about those two for the entire run of fables. Even when the book forgot they existed occasionally because they, it had to serve this sprawling cast, it was always a pleasure when the book circled back around to those two and the adventures they were getting up to. So first of all, Fables is just a fantastic book, but the central couple uh, made it all the more special to me. Holy crap. I did not know that this book existed, and I have the exact same feeling when I start watching Once Upon a Time. Like I've come back to it like two or three times. I'm like, you know, I really love fairy tales, and I want this to be something good, but then there's that factor to it and this sounds like what i i've been wanting that show to be um so i'm definitely intrigued by this and just like the fact that you're matching these two characters together romantically all the storytelling potential is just fascinating and i'm definitely going to go add this to my library right now it's really funny that that you know we we mentioned once upon a time in particular so if i remember the 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 stories that were circulating at the time when Once Upon a Time was in production is that originally they were planning to actually adapt fables. And then they decided to just go ahead and, and do their own version of fables, basically. And I know that Once Upon a Time has its fans and, and they're, you know, pretty rabid fans, in fact, in, in some cases. But ultimately, when it comes to quality, um, the writing is so much sharper on fables. It, it, it clicks, it works from, from start to end. 
I don't think there's a really a bad story in the entire run of Fables. And I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, which has the entire run in trade paperback sitting on it. It is by far one of my favorite series of all time. And it works, which once upon a time, oftentimes, regrettably, just did not. So highly recommended, first of all. And second of all, um, this Snow White... And and her relationship with Big B Wolf is so interesting. It's such a great ride to see these two getting together. Highly recommended. Yeah, I think for me, the main selling point, the reason that I even keep coming back to Once Upon a Time um, is the acting performances, particularly of, and I, I don't have the names in front of me right now, but the the actress that portrays the evil queen i think she's just an absolute screen grabber um and the guy that plays rumpelstiltskin is is fascinating as well but um aside from that i i really i i think for me the crux of it is i find it hard to see jennifer goodwin who plays snow white as anything other than this like traditional disneyified snow white that everything is like birds singing and like i i can't see any nuance to her acting you know this this snow white is decidedly different <laughs> again <laughs> uh you you'll you'll see a whole new side to some of these characters and and the the level of uh of detail the attention to detail that fable plays to all these different characters and how they circle back around and and how they all play their role and even when they're first introduced it seems like they're just a side character and then they get their moment to shine and you're like oh i have no idea that this is where this was going it's (laughs) it's absolutely fascinating it's a great great series all right chris let's go ahead and get your third couple and this one i knew about hey listen it i i would not be doing due diligence and and being true to myself if i did not include um the goddess herself storm aurora monroe and her most you know notifiable most noteworthy relationship is with the black panther himself t'challa um so this relationship is quite complex and has been met with its fair share of criticism so their mis- uh, the, excuse me their initial pairing was lauded as a token pairing of the two black characters and, and didn't see really like a depth of meaning or anything like that. But upon further, you know, um, further reading, like they've actually been part, you know, intertwined in each other's storylines for quite some time. Um, the uh, Some fans thought that the title of Queen of Wakanda seemed to be a step down for Aurora. Um, their abrupt divorce in 2012 after the events of Avengers versus X-Men was seen as a result of the film rights issues between Fox studios and Marvel studios. Um, and, and the sad truth is that it seems that we'll never get a chance to see these two together on screen after tragic Bozeman's sudden and tragic passing. Um, even though the film rights have been returned to Marvel studios. Um, but what I find compelling and interesting about this relationship is a multitude of factors um in contrast to the first two relationships that i listed pete and mj and and north star and kyle um this is a welcome change to see how two incredibly superpowered individuals omega level even on on aurora's case coexist in a relationship how do you see the best of the best how can they coexist in a long-term committed relationship this relationship is a pairing of the creme de la creme of the Marvel universe. And how does that 
work? What are the inner workings of that? Also, what's interesting to me is even after their divorce, which was like very, very abrupt in 2012, they always find a way back to each other. Whether it's a team up or a hookup, like Thanos, they seem inevitable. They always find their way to one another again. Um, it seems like a really interesting take on like the Shakespearean idea of star-crossed lovers. Like they were doomed from the start. Like they make this progress, but then something keeps calling them back. Um, and I, I think that also their love transcend, uh, transcends the social norm of marriage and what what society expects you to be. Um, and yet it is still weighed down by both of their individual affiliations and responsibilities. Um, Storm being, you know, one of the central figures of the X-Men and, and all of her now affiliations, you know, nationality speaking, that doesn't sound right. But anyways, the ties to Krakoa and this new sovereign nation and her responsibilities there um, versus, you know, T'Challa being not just an Avenger, but the king of a nation in Wakanda and, and all of that. Um, I think for me, the most enjoyable source material. So if you're looking for um, where to read um, that I found thus far, and I'm currently in the midst of this, but, um, but uh, Reginald Hudlin's issues of Black Panther leading up to their marriage in 2007 were absolutely delightful. My favorite scene was uh, a, a, an issue where T'Challa proposes and we're left on a cliffhanger. And then the next issue, we're we're picking up, up on the same page and he's still down on one knee. And then this villain comes in and attacks and T'Challa's fighting them off. And she's just standing there with her arms crossed, not giving him an answer, not helping him in this battle. Um, and then at the finally, at the end of this sequence, she finally says yes and single-handedly takes out the villain by herself, even though he's been fighting him for pages and pages. Super, super amazing. Um, and then also I would highly recommend Tanahasi Coates's run on the title, which I'm about halfway through. And it's almost assuredly going to be a nerd commendation very soon. Now, interestingly enough, they were divorced in 2012. ta takes over the title and his run starts in 2016. So this is four years after they've been apart. And yet it is still this nuanced relationship of back and forth and the, the magnetic pulls of these two characters, they always find their way back to one another. So, so, so my third and final choice for my favorite couples to read is uh storm and T'Challa. You know, once again, I knew absolutely nothing about this pairing as it was happening at Marvel because I was happily reading about 30 DC comics a month at the time. I will say the pairing makes sense, especially how you describe it. I read a little online about how the relationship ended as part of this whole Avengers vs. X-Men story, and that that just seems silly. It seems like, once again, there was some kind of editorial mandate to have like a married couple just be separated. Um, and, and, you know, as we've already discussed, I'm not a big fan of that. It's, it's just a shame. I'll have to really dig into some of the stories you recommended because, you know, following, you know, watching Black Panther, I'm a really big fan of the character and I've not had a chance yet to really dive into some of the comics. Um, I feel like I've been missing out on a fantastic character there. So maybe this is a place for me to dive in because I'm also a big fan of, of Storm's 
uh, primarily, of course, uh, from meeting her in the uh, X-Men animated series, and she was just fantastic in there. Not not saying anything too negative about Halle Berry's portrayal, but uh, let's say the animated series uh, made me a fan and the movies did not. Yeah, I've been obsessed with Storm since I was a small child, and that was my first crush. And, you know, I went on to marry a woman who's a dead ringer for storm. So I'm, I'm to say I'm obsessed is, is the understatement of the century. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so this is, is, it's, it's really interesting seeing, like I said, in, in Coates's run, I'll, I'll recommend it in the future for all these other reasons. He's one of the most talented writers, even outside of comics that I've ever come across. But um, even it's a testament to his skill even with that editorial mandate that you can feel reading these comics, how they work around that. And they still are able to tell a story even with that hanging over their head. So it's, it's just fascinating. Um, Dave, this one I know a little bit about. Um, so I'm, I'm not completely out in the woods this time. What you got for your third and final pairing? Well, I don't know if you picked up on this, but when we were talking about Mary Jane and Pete, I said that they were my second favorite couple at Marvel. Uh, so here's my first. Uh, there's a couple at Marvel that always struck me as one of the more real relationships between two superpowered people. So not a superpowered person and a quote unquote regular person. Although the characters are not usually considered A-list, uh, and they're definitely not what you would call star-crossed lovers, I still count their relationship among the best of Marvel comics, and they are Luke Cage and Jessica Jones. Although most people know the couple from the Netflix incarnation, where they had a fling and then drifted apart into their own shows and storylines, the comic couple uh, is an altogether different situation. They, they met, they hooked up, Jessica got pregnant, from there, their relationship grew into a strong bond of a couple that eventually got married after the baby was born, uh, and they raise a child together. At the same time, neither character ever surrenders their individuality to the collective I mentioned earlier. Um, they argue, they disagree, they they have huge blowouts. They're two very strong characters with you know very strong views and and sort of a my way or the highway attitude. And and yet, they make it work. And so far, last I checked, they are still together. Um, those are really the best relationships to me. You know, the ones that encounter challenges, sure, but they emerge from them stronger than before. And this has not been a constant will they or won't they, which is what so many writers like to do with relationships. This relationship has had a consistent progression and overall, a stay true to the individual characters. You know, I always enjoyed their interactions, especially in early issues of Alias. And then eventually in The Pulse, for those of you that still remember The Pulse, uh, I still hold out hope we might get to see their live action counterparts find each other again. I would love to see the comic book relationship between these two fully realized in, in live action ones. You know, I, I talk a lot about how I really love DC comic books. But Jessica Jones and and Luke Cage and their story and their relationship was one thing that consistently drew me over to Marvel. I adored Alias. I, I loved reading The Pulse. Anything that has, you know, Luke Cage's or Jessica Jones's name on it eventually ends up in my hands because those two characters individually are great. 
but together they make my absolute favorite pairing at Marvel Comics. Yeah, so I, I haven't read any particular source material of their solo titles or or, or like a, a title that is focused or centered around the two of them, but I have I've seen them crop up several, several times in, in other books that I'm reading. Um, the most recent one that that calls to memory is the Miles Morales book. And just like every interaction I can completely relate to being in an in an interracial marriage you know, having a biracial child and like having to change diapers, passing them back off. And, you know, it's all the while still trying to live your individual life, your own career and all those things. You know, I may not be a a superhero or I may not be a private investigator, but, you know, you can easily copy and cut and paste that for, you know, individual careers of normal everyday working folks. And, And it's so relatable and just like how they are still so strong and headstrong individualistic all while being you know in a relationship together is is very relatable and very fun to watch and let's just do a shout out to the netflix marvel shows oh do i miss them jessica jones and luke cage in particular were two fantastic shows fantastically acted and and anytime that those two characters shared screen time was an absolute delight so uh we miss you netflix marvel shows bring them back <laughs> uh hey papa feige said um don't lose hope so he teased something about uh don't forget about them so fingers crossed yeah i'm right there with you well on that note let's turn our back on love and our eyes towards some great nerdy media after our final break it's time for some nerd commendations don't go anywhere <laughs> And we're back, and it's time for our patented nerd commendations. Chris is entering the realm of television. Chris, what have you got this week? So I know that we typically like to reserve this segment for um, like under the radar type of materials, under the under the radar media, games that may not be games, shows, comics that may not be getting a list billing. Um, but every once in a while we make an exception for something that is just really standing out and is really transcendent and it might be mainstream, but we're, we're, you know, talking about it all the same. And for me, that is WandaVision. I'm going to try my best to not give any spoilers, but after today's episode, um, recording Friday, the 5th of February, after today's episode, I have to make this my new accommodation. Here's the things that I love about this show. It's so freaking smart stylistically the format the the theme songs to every episode the introductions the beginning animations storytelling devices it's like a love letter to so many different things not just comics but the different decades and eras of sitcom television if you love bewitched like i do brady bunch full house uh i mean like definitely watch the show you don't even have to be a comic book fan necessarily to enjoy this um, but then it does lean into its comiciness and you know and stuff like that. History of TV, the commercials are smart and they have so many Easter eggs and references that it's just like, wow, this is really paying attention to every single detail. I can't say enough about the acting on this show across the board. It's top notch. Elizabeth Olsen, I guess w- would this be a category of an Emmy? It's technically television. Um, she deserves it. 
she's absolutely mesmerizing. She finally gets her time to shine. She's she's kind of had a rough intro with Age of Ultron, um, really found herself in, in the later films, but then finally had the spotlight light upon her and it does not disappoint. I think Paul Bettany is transcendent and it tackles a lot of issues like consent, artificial intelligence, being self-aware. I think Tiana Paris is an absolute revelation and, and Monica Rambo. I've always been a huge fan of this character. I've talked about it on the show before. I cannot wait to see where they go with this character. Um, even going forward into Captain Marvel two um, fan favorites, like Randall parks, Jimmy Wu, Kat Dennings, Dr. Darcy Lewis. They don't disappoint the, the dynamic between Monica Jimmy and Darcy is just probably my favorite thing about the show period. And while it does maintain the familiarity of the MCU, this is really uncharted territory. Like we, we, one of the biggest criticisms of the MCU is how the, the formula it's formulaic and it's can be samey, but I think this is a very welcome change to that. Um, It's also not necessarily a panel for panel, reproduction of any comic you know you think of the wanda and vision you know miniseries from the 80s you think of tom king's vision um it's not a panel for panel thing but it has definite roots in all of those titles and, and and others as well um including avengers disassembled house of m you know big wanda and vision storylines um so i have no idea what's going to happen next um also, because we have no idea where the MCU is headed, even with those announcements, we don't know the charted path. How are we going to arrive at those points of destination? So do yourself a favor, Disney Plus, go check out WandaVision. You know, I can't even begin to describe how much I've enjoyed this so far. So I totally echo your nerd commendation. Just, you know, what, four episodes in? It is Five. A, five. Today five. was five. Oh, man. Five. There's only, what, Nine. Oh, that's not good. Five episodes in, and it's exactly what I'd hoped for. It's highly experimental. It's slow burn, a great story set in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but distinctively different from what's come before. You know, the show is clever in its treatment of classic sitcom tropes, genuinely genuinely imitates the art form perfectly, and even manages to get some genuine laughs. The, The mystery of it all, is what keeps me coming back for more, though. What's going on and what will happen next? And you know, we've talked about this before many times on this show, but I love the weekly drop of episodes compared to binging. It gives the show room to breathe, the fans can process the story, and speculation is half of the fun with a story so steeped in mystery. I was disappointed to see how many people on social media were acting like spoiled children when it comes to how episodes are released, or the fact that the show takes its time to build its narrative. You know, as comic book fans, we all should know better. We're we're used to getting a story in 22-page monthly increments. I think a 30-minute episode every week is still faster than that and packs more content to boot. In short, I love this show so far. I will say that I genuinely hope that Wanda is not going to turn out to be some kind of bad guy here. I'd much rather see her being manipulated by some outside force. Maybe that's just me. But one way or another, I'm along for the ride. I really enjoy this show. Um, 
I profusely apologize. I've neglected to give Catherine Hahn her flowers for her portrayal as Agnes, the nosy neighbor. She's absolutely magical, pun intended. Like, I can't say enough about her, like always just popping up in a scene and, and just, just completely busting my gut with laughter. She's, she's so great. I, I still love her from Step Brothers. It's probably one of my favorite things about that movie is her, her scenes in there. But um, yeah, I, 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 I was completely floored when I saw that people thought it was boring after the first two episodes. Um, you know, so I, I completely agree with what you said about being spoiled and the, the anticipation, the less is more model that I've championed before, like leave me wanting for something. Don't go out of your way to explain things about characters that are tertiary and don't mean anything. I think, I think the less is more as a storytelling device is absolutely a strength and they wield it like Excalibur here. Uh, Dave, you're going for a killer recommendation here. What you got? Well, in my never-ending quest for great comics specifically not based on superheroes or published by Marvel or DC, I came across a gem from Boom Studios, which is Something is Killing the Children. The book is written by James Tinian with art by Werther Deladera and colors by Miguel Muerto. Here's the synopsis from Boom Studios. When the children of Archer's Peak begin to go missing... Everything seems hopeless. Most children never return, but the ones that do have terrible stories, impossible stories of terrifying creatures that live in the shadows. Their only hope of finding and eliminating the threat is the arrival of a mysterious stranger, one who believes the children and claims to see what they can see. Her name is Erica Slaughter. She kills monsters. That is all she does, and she bears the cost because it must be done. When it was first announced, it was supposed to be a five-issue limited series. Since then, it's been promoted, you could say, to an ongoing, and has even won an Eisner Award for Best New Series in 2020. And still, I think this book needs more of a shout-out, needs more accolades. The book is really a, just perfect for somebody like me who has a love for the horror genre. There's plenty of creepy monsters and atmospheric set pieces. Deladero's art is fantastic here and perfectly enhanced by Muerto's colors. Tinian's writing is super sharp as it breaks up the creepy and horrifying moments with genuine interest in the characters. There's also a great slow burn mystery surrounding Erica and the organization she belongs to that hunts monsters. Something is Killing the Children is just a genuine page-turner, and it's not to be missed. I so have enjoyed getting caught up with this series. It's got that great, you know, not all is well in small-town Americana vibe, like a Stephen King kind of vibe, mixed with a dash of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and a hefty helping of dread and terror. You know, I love the series, and may it continue for a long time. You know, this one has been um, on my radar for quite a while, if for no other reason than our Instagram comic community, um, it is selling like hotcakes. Like people cannot keep this these issues on the shelves. So they're going for, you know, even upwards of, of cover price on, you know, Instagram live sales on uh, sites like Mercari or, or eBay, just because this, this, uh, this comic, you can't seem to you know, keep it in stock. So it's definitely been on my radar and something that I had been planning to visit. And, you know, hearing your your pitch, all the more reason for me to check into it. I've heard great things about James Tinian III's writing. 
Um, and I, I'm definitely intrigued. And also, after Nerd Nightmare, I feel invincible and nothing can scare me anymore. I, I somehow doubt that, Chris. I somehow <laughs> doubt that. Don't, don't worry, my friend. October will come around again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this this one's special. And I have to say, Boom Studios is, is one of those companies that I just need to spend a little bit more time going through their catalog. Because every time I pick up something from Boom, it's just good. It's high quality stuff. And it's it's it fills a niche that if you read nothing but but superhero comics you're sorely missing out on some quality stuff from boom so i'm definitely going to dive in more on that company as well so this is a perfect tease for our next episode um thanks for joining us this time around but it's already been spoiled on social media because we asked for your questions Ross Ritchie, the CEO, founder of Boom Studios himself, is going to be joining us on our very next episode. So that is one that you do not want to miss. Yeah, it's going to be an incredible conversation. I cannot wait to pick that man's brain. Uh, not not literally, not into something is killing the children <laughs> style. I just want to be clear on that. Anyways, that's it for another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you liked what you heard in today's episode, please subscribe and drop us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're available wherever podcasts can be found, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, YouTube, even our very own website, nerdbyword.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NerdByWord, uh, individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. Um, you can also find our Facebook page uh, at the NerdByWord. Also, be sure to check out our friend podcast, X of Words, for me to regularly go on there and rant about my mutant uh, feelings and agenda. Um, as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>